This was the first trial that was televised live. What year? 53, super close. 56, 55, 55. 54 is really close too. If I'd had candy up here, I'd give you some, but I don't have any candy right here. December 6th through December 9th, 1955, the murder trial of of Harry Leonard Washburn. It's the first murder trial televised in the United States. One account local newspaper said this, from December 6th through the 9th, one could have shot a cannon down Austin Avenue in Waco, Texas, and not hurt a soul because the normally frenzied Christmas shoppers were all inside the stores watching the trial on TV. It captured central Texas. One observer said the camera went on when the judge called the court to every order in the morning, when the judge called the church to order every morning and stayed on until we recessed. And of course, that's just the first of many televised uh, court cases in America. Perhaps the most famous was this one of uh, O.J. Simpson, football star, who's then accused of, of murdering Nicole Brown Simpson, his ex-wife, and her friend Ronald Goldman. Trial took eight months, different than the four days of the other trial. Remember what year that was? Ninety-five. I don't think I heard they heard ninety-four, ninety-seven. It was a 95. Cameras were in the courtroom, and this trial became a national obsession. In fact, I remember when I, I, was, I was transitioning between jobs. I was working at Arthur Anderson uh, in St. Charles, Illinois, during the first part of the trial. And it was such that our work was such that that trial was on, on the radio, WBBM, live broadcast on the radio. It was also on the TV. By the time the trial was over, I was working at Kishwaukee Community Hospital, and when the verdict came down... On uh, October 3rd, 1995, we had a crowd of employees there just watching this trial. I'm guessing there were 15 of us, maybe. And when uh, O.J. Simpson was declared not guilty, the main cook of the, uh, the hospital was there, and he declared that there would be free orange juice the rest of the week because O.J. was free, right? It was... And uh, that was kind of a, f- a fun week, but that was the environment that was, that was really good. And since then, many trials have been broadcast around the nation, around the world. And with the advent of streaming, it's just even increased. Um, many trials have found their way onto uh, YouTube. You can uh, just even right now binge watch hours and hours and hours and days and days of trials, if that delights your, your fancy. But you can go right now and watch the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse or Derek Chauvin or the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial. Just hours of footage out there just waiting for you to watch. Well, I, I bring that up for you this morning because we're going to get to see a trial in our text this morning. We're not going to watch the trial, but we're going to get to read about a trial. We're going to read about it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 23, uh, verses 1 through 10. So I invite you to take your Bibles, open there. If you need a few Bible, it's there in front of you. Just really encourage you to have it open because what I'm going to preach on, what I'm going to say is going to come right, just right out of the text. I trust that you will, will see it there. And uh, before I read our text, I just want to, want to bring us up to speed before we enter this courtroom scene. <clears throat> For the past two years, we've been working our way through the, the book of Acts. And the, Acts, the, the book of Acts tells the inspired history of the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, just north and south of of Jerusalem, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
<clears throat> it began in chapter 1 <clears throat> with about 100 followers and Jesus up in the upper room praying. And uh, by the time it ends in chapter 28, there'll be untold thousands of believers in the gospel of Christ all over the known world. And um, the one mostly responsible for this expansion of the gospel is the Apostle Paul. He went on three missionary journeys, bringing the gospel both to Jews and to Gentiles alike. And in Acts 21, we see him coming back from his third missionary journey. He arrived back in Jerusalem during Pentecost and and sought to make peace with the believing Jews there in in Jerusalem. And and he sought to do so by paying for a a Nazarite vow and and even offering a, a sacrifice himself in the temple. But when Paul was in the temple, the unbelieving Jews saw their chance. They falsely accused him of bringing a, a Gentile into the church. It caused an uproar among the Jews. And so they seized Paul, dragged him out of the gates of the city, and began to beat Paul. And it was only because of the Roman soldiers who were watching the temple grounds and their guard towers. As they watched and noticed what was going on in the commotion, they came to rescue Paul. And Paul wasn't killed by the mob because of their, their um, heroic duties in some regards to take Paul out of that. As Paul is taken away by the tribune, he convinced his tribune, this Roman soldier, right, to speak to the crowd, and, and speak he did, and, and Paul basically gave his testimony to the crowds. They heard He talked about his former matter of life, what it was like before Christ, and he talked about how Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and then, and then how he transformed him to instantly be preaching Christ. And then this crowd listened to him all the while up until the time in which he talked about Jesus telling him to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. And it was at that point there was another uproar, and, and, and the Jews hated the Gentiles, and they couldn't imagine anyone reaching out to the Gentiles representing any sort of Jewish religion or, of any type. And so the crowd for the second time right, attacked Paul, and for the second time the Roman tribune right, took Paul out of the crowds. He was taken into Roman custody. And the Roman tribune was confused about Paul, like, why is this man causing such a stir? Well, what, what is up with him? And so they were going to examine him by flogging. And as the centurion was about to strike the first blow, Paul turned to him and says, is it lawful to flog a Roman who is a citizen and uncondemned? And of course it wasn't. And the, and the centurion went back to the tribune and the tribune said, no, no, we can't do anything. And, and basically kept him in custody for the night. Well, this was the next day. We pick it up in chapter 22 and verse 30. That just picks up the council. Verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so picture the scene. This, this Roman tribune is, is trying to figure out uh, just what is up with the Apostle Paul. Why are people so angry with this man? Why, why did I have to rescue Paul twice from this Jewish mob? And so he called the Jewish religious leaders from, from, from uh, like all around, I'm going to say, but from Jerusalem, these, these men who are in charge, the, the leaders of the Jews, to come and meet with him. And, and, and so the, the, the priest, the high priest came and all the religious council, and from the best guess of what we have, it was the high priest who was there and 70 members of the council, Pharisees and Sadducees. So there were, there were 71 of them in the courtyard, but there certainly were also some security detail that were present as well. Not unlike today when you have a courtroom scene, you have the judge, you have the jury, um, and, and then you have, even have some security uh, there as well to make sure that everything is, is okay in the courtroom. And so maybe 80 people at this trial, maybe, uh, maybe more. Uh, we, we don't know, but kind of picture that room, right? Just, just as big as we are. 
bigger even. And anyway, the, the tribune placed Paul in their midst and the trial began. And all this while, the tribune is trying to figure out, as verse 30 says, exactly why, what's the real reason why he's being accused by the Jews. And so with that, we read our text and we see our trial. Chapter 23, verse 1, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, I trust you see this is not exactly a normal trial. There are no formal proceedings, no formal charges, no prosecuting attorneys. Paul was not offered a lawyer to help his defense, but make no mistake, this was a trial the judge and jury were assembled, and they were assembled together really to get for, from Paul the, the truth uh, uh, about him and, and why they were there. And as the trial unfolds, Paul really clarifies what, why they were there at that moment. The, the core of this text comes in verse 6 when he says, Brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of the Pharisee. It's with respect to the hope of the resurrection from the dead that I'm on trial. And it's from this phrase that I get the title of my message this morning, On Trial for the Resurrection. Now, the text breaks nicely in half. Five verses and five verses. The first five verses, we see Paul interacting with the judge, who's the high priest in this case. And in the next five verses, we see Paul interacting with the jury, that is, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here's what we see first, in the first half. I'm just calling it a spat with the judge. Is what's going on here. And, and sometimes it's some unruly people in, in courtrooms will spat with the judge and argue with the judge. And that's exactly what Paul does here. It says in these verses, we see Paul going back and forth with the high priest. Ananias is his name. And from the get-go, it goes bad. L- look at verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. Here Paul stands boldly before judge and jury, looking intently at them. He's not like the cowardly lion who trembled before Oz and ran out, scared out of his mind. No, he stood boldly before the council, right, gazing his eyes at them, looking them all in the eye. That's what it means. He was looking intently at the council, right? There's no looking down, no ashamed or intimidated, no whispering. He was Proverbs 28, verse 1, illustrated. Proverbs 28, 1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. 
And that's what Paul was. Indeed, Paul was a righteous man. He boldly declared that righteousness. He said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, Paul didn't mean that he never sinned. But, but Paul did see, right, that, that he was walking completely in what he thought was right before God. I mean, we saw a few weeks ago how Paul fully admitted his wrong in persecuting Christians and bringing them to death, binding and delivering them over to men, both men and women, to prison. He's not saying I was blameless. Rather, he said, I've always lived before God with this, this good conscience. In fact, he's going to bring up his conscience again. It's in um, chapter 24. Uh, in, in verse 16, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience, both toward God and towards men. And, and that's what he's saying. He says, I just always, this is the way Paul lived his life. That's the way he was wired. It's just to live with a right conscience before God and before other people, following after what he believes is right. And he did that even when he was not believing in Jesus. And he did that now that he's believing in Jesus. It's just following after the way. I'm reminded of the scene the Diet of Worms with Martin Luther when he stood before the Pope and the Council of Cardinals. Very similar to Paul standing before them all. And, and, and uh, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings. He stood boldly before them. Right? You, you, you know this phrase, right? He says, Unless I'm convinced by the Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience would... Be neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. That's what Paul's saying. He says, I have lived my whole life bound by conscience. I can do no other. That includes his missionary activity. Bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in the far reaches of the earth. And then in verse 2, we see that the trial turn for bad. Because we see verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to, to strike him in the mouth. And so much for innocent until proven guilty. In fact, if anything, it was a high priest who was guilty at this moment. For according to Jewish oral tradition, it was said, he who strikes the cheek of an Israelite strikes, as it were, the glory of God. And here was an Israelite commanding another Israelite to be struck. And when you, we hear this word struck, right, He commanded them to to strike him on the mouth. Don't think slap, open-handed slap. This was the same word used in chapter 21, verse 32, which describes this Jewish crowd beating Paul with the intent to kill him. And you don't intend to kill someone with an open fist across the cheek. You, You tend to want to kill somebody if you have a clenched fist strong to the face, or maybe with a club that you beat somebody with, or maybe with a, a baton, right? A, a policeman standing there, someone in the guard, just going to whack him in the face. That's what was taking place, a, a direct blow to the face. Now, such violence was normative for Ananias. We, we know a lot about this man from extra-biblical sources. He reigned as high priest from 47 A.D. to 59 A.D. Now, that kind of puts the time frame of, of Paul in the book of Acts just right there between 47 to 59 A.D. Ananias was an evil king. He was a wicked man. In fact, he was known for being vicious and violent. One commentator said this, he was known for greed, quick temper, violence, and pro-Roman sentiments. Eventually, Josephus tells us he was assassinated by the Jews who were tired of his tyranny. So this was not a righteous judge by any means. And it only makes sense that Ananias would, would lash out at Paul like this. He had no regard for the law. Indeed, the law said this, Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in the court. 
And this was unjust. Slapping a man, hitting a man, striking a man for simply professing his innocence. But Ananias knew enough about Paul and knew what he was and knew what he perceived to be sin and wrong and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and he just smiked that man. He's not innocent. Well, Paul was quick then to point out the wrong done to him. Then Paul said, verse 3, he said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? That was the boldness of Paul. That was the quick wit of Paul. He recognized injustice immediately, what happened to him, and he had the boldness to point it out. In, in here, the high priest was under law, was acting as a, as a judge. He's violating that same law he's looking to uphold. Again, Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. Yet, it was unjust in ordering Paul to be struck in the mouth. Yet Paul pointed out it's obvious. Ananias was a hypocrite. He, he was the one to uphold the law, uphold justice, and he was being unjust at the very time. Paul calls him a whitewashed wall. Now, what imagery might come to your mind is the imagery used by Jesus who confronted the Pharisees. These are tombs outside of Jerusalem. They're whitewashed tombs. And of them, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right? The, the picture is obvious. Right? On the outside, it looks squeaky clean. I mean, what looks cleaner than that? It looks like a, just a nice desert place with a lot of boxes like that. But you'd start opening some of them and you would get uncleanness and bones. And perhaps if someone was buried more quickly, you'd have decay. It's the ants and maggots. The maggots are eating away and the bacteria eating away at people's flesh. Like, he said, but this is what you're like. You're on the outside. You look good. But on the inside, you're not. That's what Jesus said. And such a picture is true. But I don't think Paul had this picture in mind. I think Paul had more of this picture in mind. Because Paul didn't say whitewashed tomb. He says whitewashed wall. In Ezekiel 13, we read of, of God's promise to bring down the prophets of Ezekiel's day, calling them whitewashed walls. Listen to Ezekiel 13, 14, 10 through 14. Thus says the Lord, when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain and you, O great hailstones, will fall and a stormy wind will break out. And when the wind, when the wall falls, will it not be said to you, where's the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there should be a deluge of rain in my in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you smeared with whitewash and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. You shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel promises, though you have this wall and though you whitewash it, so you try to put it as clean as can be in the context here, the prophet is saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. He says, you try to whitewash it. I'm going to take that down. I'm going to destroy it. In some regards, it's a lot of hypocrisy. And I just say this, right? Hypocrisy is devastating. It's devastating not only for the hypocrite, because it would be devastating for the hypocrite, right? When all is open and laid bare to the eyes of the Lord with whom we have to do, it's devastating enough. 
But hypocrisy is also devastating for those around who see the hypocrite. Who look on the hypocrite and hear, right, proclaiming all these righteous things and yet see something totally different. Says, that's what a religious person is? I want none of that. And how many people have been turned away from religion because of hypocrisy? And I simply say this, church family, just the solution to hypocrisy is to be rich in the gospel. Not look at me, I'm so righteous. Not come to our church because we're filled with righteous people, but come to church because we have hope in Christ where righteousness to be found. We're not righteous people. Uh Oh, we're seeking that, but we fail. And we're not good before the Lord. We have this humble dependence, though, upon Jesus Christ, who alone can make us righteous. Put your trust in Him, and He can make you righteous as well. But Paul's message to Ananias is this. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You may look nice and good in your priestly garb, but you're going to get crushed, just like the wall in Ezekiel 13 was crushed. And Paul was prophetic. God struck down this man when he was assassinated by his own people. So I, I told you earlier. Now, after, after this, right, Paul was confronted by the security detail standing near him. Verse 4, those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, at this point, there's lots of room for speculation. We, we don't have Paul's tone here at this moment. Um, I wish we did, but we don't. Um, we don't know if Paul was apologetic. Like, we don't know if Paul said this. He says, I'm sorry. I did not know that he was the high priest. I would never have rebuked him if I would have known that he was the high priest. Because the law says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And I am so greatly sorry for doing so. That may be. He may have been apologetic. But I think Paul was sarcastic. He's a high priest? Really? I saw nothing priestly about this man. He acted, he acted contrary to the law. Had he been the real high priest, I never would have cursed him as I did because the law says you should not speak evil of a ruler of the people. I think that's probably more in line. Paul knew who this man was. Paul knew he was standing. Like you get in a courtroom, you know who the judge is. But it may be that he was, he was apologetic. I'm not sure. But it doesn't really matter much because the scene quickly changes, focusing on the judge to the jury and with the jury, I'm calling it this, right? From a spat with a judge to a split in the jury. We see this in verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Here we see the wisdom of Paul. He looked out on the council, he said, hmm. Who's here? We have Pharisees on one side. We have Sadducees on other side. And I see that they are, are divided. Um, very equivalent to, say, our Senate today, where you have Republicans on the one side and you got Democrats on the other side. And uh, someone being accused by both of them might say, hmm, there's a division here, and uh, maybe I can use that to my advantage. And I would say the Sadducees and Pharisees in those days were as far apart as the Democrats and Republicans of our day. Just opposite ends of the spectrum. You have, on the one hand, you have the Sadducees, the liberal ones. They believed in Moses. The scripture consisted only of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't believe in any sort of oral tradition or the teaching of the rabbis. It was just traditionalism, right? It was liberalism. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. They believed that the soul perished with the body. 
They were loose with the sovereignty of God and loose with their living. And all these things set them at odds with the Pharisees. They weren't the liberals. The Sadducees were liberals. These were the legalists. These are the ones, the Pharisees, who believed all the Old Testament. And these are the Pharisees who included the oral law as this hedge of protection around the Old Testament with their practices. And they were very strict about their conduct, trying their hardest to keep every single detail of the law. That's why Paul says here that I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisee. That's why I always maintain a clear conscience, right? I'm always going to do whatever I can to walk rightly before the Lord, whatever that means. And Jesus spoke about even these people, how they even divide up their spices to make sure they gave a tithe of everything they had. So you think your spices, right? Your, your clothes or your whatever, your little thing like that. You say, oh, I need to give, right, my, my 10% here to this. I need to give my 10% here to this. I need to give my 10% every third of the year, right? Every three years, I need to give to this. So they were taking out, right, just portions of their little, right, cups, their little whatever, holding their herbs. And the Pharisees were, were the fundamentalists of the day, lived very legalistic lives. So you have this, this council filled with, Liberal Pharisees, Sadducees on the one hand, and legalist Pharisees on the other. And Paul identifies himself with one of the Pharisees, and then he puts himself puts forth the resurrection, which of course he knew the Pharisees would um, embrace. In fact, Paul points out that the whole trial was a trial about the resurrection, something the Pharisees would have embraced, something the Sadducees <clears throat> would have denied. Verse six: I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Indeed, and that caused a split in the jury. We see that split in verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees, verse 8, say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. This was intentional. It's not like, like, it's not like Paul said this and went, ooh, I didn't realize that there was a going to form this division. No, he said these things in wisdom, knowing full well that they would, would split in half like that. And I don't think it was that Paul realizing only at that moment that, oh, if I talk about the resurrection, maybe I can split this and maybe I can have some hope. No, he knew fully well. He'd seen the council in action. You remember the story of Stephen, one of the seven who was commissioned by the church to oversee the, the serving of the widows, Acts chapter 6? He was preaching Jesus, and some rose up to dispute against him, and they could not um, deal with his wisdom, and the Spirit of God within him was just too much for them. Um, And so they brought Stephen before this very same council to be judge and jury over him as well. Now, it's not the council filled with the same people. Again, it's like the Senate, right? Twenty years later, you're going to have some of the same people, but there's going to be a lot of turnover, but you're still going to have your high priest and your 70 men. And when you read the account of Stephen, you realize that Paul was right there watching the proceedings. The sense he he wasn't on the Sanhedrin itself, but he was right there approving everything that was taking place, watching Stephen proclaim the truth with boldness, watching Stephen be condemned and stoned to death. And perhaps Paul even knew, thought, maybe this is the potential outcome for him, for me as well. So he was going to be strategic with his words, knowing that these words were true and knowing that they would cause a division. But maybe, right, maybe it was the Holy Spirit who, who brought these words to his mind. 
Do you remember the words of the Lord Jesus? He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or with what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And maybe it was the Holy Spirit teaching him at this very hour what to say. Right? Paul, make it about the resurrection so that you'll divide this jury and you'll have some safety. Well, when Paul said that, for the hope of the, and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial today, this led to a great clamor, a, a great uproar, this loud outcry. We, we see this in verse 9. He says, um, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if an, a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now that's supposed to be funny. Right, let's try that again. Let me read that and then like maybe everybody laughs, right? Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up, contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke with him? <laughs> right? Here are the Pharisees against this man. All of a sudden he says, oh, I'm on their side. And so they're like pulling out this spirit. The Sadducees don't believe in a spirit. Maybe an angel, right? They're not believing in an angel. They're like, oh, Paul's on our side. He's, he's one of ours. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, like, so, so what you got here is then from that, from the Pharisees siding with him, the Sadducees on the other side were like, no, 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 and they're, they're back and forth and back and forth, and this became violent, so it's not just verbal, right, even physical. The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. It's now the third time. That the tribune had to rescue Paul from the clutches of the Jews. The first time, right, when Paul was falsely accused in the temple and they, they took him out and they started beating him. And the second time was after he'd given that speech of his testimony. He talked about going to the Gentiles. And uh, now here the third time when the council was divided. And apart from the sovereign intervention of the Lord, indeed, Paul would have been torn to pieces, as verse 10 says. And next week, we're going to even see the great promise to the Paul in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So let's step back here a little bit. just want you to think about the main point here. Paul has put his foot down. He's put his foot in the stand. And he said, listen, this trial, he's going to make it about the resurrection. Now you might say, well, I thought he was on trial for taking the gospel of the Gentiles. Acts 22, verse 21. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, right? Wasn't it that go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles? And it was the whole Gentiles that, that stirred things up. Well, yes. But more foundationally than just even the gospel going to the Gentiles, it was the risen Christ who told Paul to go to the Gentiles. And so Paul made the resurrection, Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and risen from the dead, the line on which he's going to stand. He's going to say, I'm going to stand right here. This is what this trial is all about. In fact, he's going to bring this up when he stands before Felix in, in chapter 24. Uh, look, look, verse 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. So I always take it to pains. I have a clear conscience before both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought 
to be here before you and to make an accusation. They should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say that wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He brings it back to the resurrection. He says, that's what this issue is about. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and he sent me to preach. And these people are denying the resurrection. They're denying that Jesus rose from the dead. And later even, when speaking to Agrippa, he's going to make the resurrection the issue. Look over in chapter 26. He says, um, verse, verse 7, right? Our, 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 verse 6. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to the God of our fathers, right? What, what hope and promise is that? To which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they worship, earnestly worship, day and night. For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King, for the hope of the resurrection of the dead, for life everlasting with Jesus, for those who believe in Jesus to be in His presence forever. And then he says this, verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why, why do you think it's so incredible? If we have a sovereign God who's sovereign over everything, why do you think it's so incredible if God raises people from the dead? It ought not to be such a, an incredible, amazing thing. In fact, this has always been Paul's main thing. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, I made this to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. And according to the Scriptures, he was buried, that he was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, according to my Gospel. Like, like 1 Corinthians, and this is Corinth, this is back Acts chapter 18. He says, this is the one thing that I made central to you. This is the Gospel. Christ dead, right? Died for our sins. Buried. And then he rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Church, we worship a risen Savior. We worship a risen Christ. A few years ago, I preached a message on Easter called the Apostolic Preaching of the Resurrection. I looked at Peter's preaching. I looked at Paul's preaching. And relentless, Peter was all about the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul was all about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In Pisidian Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, when he went into that synagogue, he talked about how God raised Jesus from the dead. And how he commanded us to preach to the people. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name, right? Because He's a living Lord. Or in Acts chapter 17, when He's preaching before um, the, the Areopagus, where He speaks about how God determined a day through a man, having furnished proof that He's going to judge the world through this man, having raised Him from the dead. And as soon as those in Athens heard the resurrection from the dead, they went, that's not true. People are raised from the dead! Have you talked to people about the resurrection from the dead? Even as I'm preaching this, I'm finding my own soul convicted about what's my main thing. I speak to people about the gospel, speak to people about Christ, speak to people about what I believe. I'm really struck by I don't put the resurrection out there as much as I should. Rarely do I put the resurrection out there. And I just say, that was Paul's main thing. It should be our main thing. People should not come to Rock Valley Bible Church because they look at the resurrection of the dead and say, can't believe that. That should be our main thing. So when people think about you, what do they think is the main thing? 
Do they think about you as some religious fuddy-duddy who just goes to church and doesn't swear and is happy? Maybe he's got a stickler about some rules. Maybe he doesn't watch this or does that. Or, or do people, when they think about you, think, man, that person believes something crazy. Please, this Jewish man who lives 2,000 years ago actually did live and actually died upon a cross, though he was innocent, and was buried and raised from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven, and now he's waiting, and he's the judge. <laughs> this, this man from Israel, so long ago, 2,000 years ago, he's raised from the dead. Such a foolish thing, Steve believes. Such a foolish thing, you believe. Why, Why do you come here? In fact, it's interesting, even in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, this is where we're, we're laying everything. He says, all in Christ, risen from the dead. And, and then he argues, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 and following, he says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain and we are found even to be misrepresenting God because we testified about Christ that he, about God that He raised Christ whom He would not raise if indeed it's true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of people most to be pitied. And really, that's how the world ought to look at us. If they don't believe in Christ, they ought to say, those people at Rock Valley Bible Church, they're just so deluded. They're creepy, whatever. Yeah, they're just, they just believe this strange thing. Just How can they be so deluded? We are to be most to be pitied if Christ indeed didn't raise from the dead. And then Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And just I encourage you, and I encourage my own heart, challenge my own heart, make your life, make your talk as you seek to be a witness for Christ. Make it to be, right? The, the whole theme of Acts has been be my witnesses. If you seek to be witnesses for Christ, Bring forth the resurrection. Say, I'm a witness today that Jesus Christ was dead, but now he lives again. He died on the cross for my sins, but now he's risen from the dead, and he will bring me in victory, whether in this life he comes, or whether after I die, I will be with him forever. That's my hope. I hope in this living Messiah. We should be on trial for the resurrection of the dead, just as Paul was. So let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us in our witness. You'd help me in my witness, God, to to focus more intentionally upon the resurrection of Jesus. It's, It's the one doctrine upon which all of Christianity stands or falls. God, today is not Easter morning, and yet every day, every resurrection Sunday, we worship on Sunday because that's when Christ rose on that day. That ought to be our great hope. We don't hope in some old stale book but we hope in this book because it speaks of jesus the living one risen from the dead and tells us everything that's a truth about him that we need to know 
And so, Father, I pray even this week that you would give us boldness as we speak to others about Christ and about church and about Christianity, our own hope. God, help the, the words come off our lips that I hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And that you would stir in the hearts of people who are outside the church even to see just our, our pitiable hope that that can't really be true. But then, as I see your lives, just can't deny the reality of what Christ has done in our lives. So help us, O oh God, again, just to reorient ourselves and to focus again on the, the resurrection of Jesus. May that be our hope. May, may that be our, our line in the sand. And may that be the thing that people look at when they think about us. That, oh, he believes that Jesus really rose from the dead. Yes, we do. Indeed, we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.